trauma is anything that is too much, too soon, too fast, or not enough. It's essentially brain indigestion. So we think of trauma as these external circumstances, and trauma isn't a situation, it's a brain interpretation. So trauma is not in the event, it's in the body. Welcome to the New Shoe Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Cornell. I invite you with love into this space to learn and grow with me. And for a brief moment of the day, come home to yourself. Welcome back to the New Shoe Podcast. I had the great pleasure of interviewing my friend and brilliant mind, Britt Frank. No one has opened my eyes more to understanding trauma than Brit. So I am just thrilled to be able to offer you this window into what I believe is a pretty misunderstood concept. What struck me when I started learning was how much of it was counterintuitive and also counter to what I had learned and what was generally accepted. Brit's way of framing trauma really turned things on their head for me, but in the best possible way. It's truly empowering to get out from under the misconceptions, stereotypes, and assumptions that people have about trauma and how it manifests. Britt's perspective is valuable for everyone, whether or not you consider yourself someone who has experienced trauma. You'll see that early on in the episode. I do want to mention that the topics we discuss are intense, so I remind you to take good care of yourself as always, and make sure you have the resources and support you need if you choose to listen. This episode could certainly bring up things for you. We touch on so many different topics like trauma and self-esteem, childhood trauma, inherited generational trauma, sexual trauma, trauma and eating disorders, trauma-informed therapists, the internal family systems model of therapy and how it addresses trauma, and how to help a partner who's dealing with trauma. It's such a rich episode. I will put in a quick plug for Brit's Instagram, which is to me the most surprising and informative account on Instagram. I've learned so much and highly recommend it. You can find her at Brit Frank. Without further ado, thanks for joining and I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. I'm so excited to talk today. Let's just start at the very beginning. What is trauma? Okay. Trauma is misunderstood. The words tossed around, they don't teach it in grad school. You have to do a special separate training thing to even learn about it. We're getting better. Um, so it's no wonder it's so confusing. And I didn't think I had it. I'm like, no, I don't have trauma. Trauma is that big stuff. Trauma is natural disaster or it's being in a war. And those things are obviously traumatic, but the definition of trauma that I love, I didn't come up with it, but it's so brilliant. Anything that is too much, too fast, too soon, or not enough. I'm going to say that again. Trauma is anything that is too much, too soon, too fast, or not enough. It's essentially brain indigestion. So we think of trauma as these external circumstances, and trauma isn't a situation. It's a brain interpretation. So trauma is not in the event. It's in the body. Yes, there are traumatic events that we can all agree on, but you and I can both experience the same exact thing. Like, let's say we both slam on our brakes and for you, you go about your day and you move on. But for me, my brain is now going to store this as a trauma and I'm going to have flashbacks and nightmares and I'm going to feel crazy and I'm not going to know why. 
And most people walk around really struggling with feelings of shame and self-doubt. They think that they lack motivation. They think that they're lazy. It's like most people don't have a motivation problem. They have a trauma problem and they don't know it. So I remember the first time someone suggested I had trauma. Ha. <laughs> and I was super triggered by it. That person also told me I had low self-worth and I was a people pleaser. It was like a whole trigger package. Now that I've unpacked that package, I realize, yes, I have trauma. Yes, I was a people pleaser. Yes, I had low self-worth. But at the time, I remember that trauma sort of in my mind saying like, no, like I had a happy childhood. I don't have trauma. And the stigma associated with quote unquote having trauma. I love that you name that because the stigma, if you really dive into what trauma is, it's a physiological thing. It's so important to know that trauma is not a mental illness. Trauma is an injury. It's an injury and it can heal. And so we really want to dial down the bigness of what it is. I'm not minimizing people's pain or the things that they go through, but trauma is absolutely something that we can heal from like any injury. Let's talk about this illness versus injury. Talk about that specifically in the context of mental illness and how people might have been told that there's something wrong with them. Wrong. So my disclaimer with this is if you are taking meds, don't stop taking them after you hear this talk. Medication's great. If it works for you, take it. If you don't like it, talk to your doctor. But please do not take anything that we say here as license to just change your medication. If you look at what people display, depression, anxiety, when people think of mental illness, they think of bipolar or borderline personality disorder, right? But trauma in the body, if it's not dealt with, looks exactly the same as mental illness. I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety and panic disorder and OCD and ADD as a hot mess and borderline personality disorder because I had all these crazy symptoms. I had eating disorders. I was depressed, all of the things, like all of the things. But what I didn't know was these were not anything that was making me sick. There was nothing fundamentally wrong with me. My nervous system was traumatized and the symptoms looked like mental illness. But once you heal the underlying trauma and you address that, the symptoms stop. Mm. It's amazing. It's really amazing. And if not totally stop, because I don't really believe in all cured, all better, but they get so much more manageable. Like I do not meet criteria for any mental illnesses anymore. And it's a really, really a disservice that a lot of mental health professionals do by slapping a diagnosis without once ever asking, do you know what trauma is? And let's examine this first. I saw a therapist for years and no one ever asked me that until one day someone did. So let's talk about um, what you mentioned, the nervous system, the mm-hmm. body. Help us understand the role of the body and the nervous system. So I always tell people who push back and they go, well, I don't, I don't have trauma. I had a great childhood. I'll say, that's awesome. How's your life working? Are you living your best life? Is your relationship with sex good? Is your relationship with food good? Do you have good... If life's working for you and you're happy, then don't go see a therapist, then do your thing, have at it. But for people who are confused and they don't understand why certain things are difficult, even though they don't think that they had a bad childhood, even though they don't think they have trauma, we want to start with, if your life is less than ideal, you qualify for dealing with this thing. Trauma is for everybody. So there's that. Now, our brains and our minds live inside of a body. And again, with mental health, we treat it as if it's this separate thing. We talk about mental health, 
as something separate from physical health. But our minds are housed inside of our brains, which live inside of our bodies. So understanding that our thoughts actually impact our physiology, our physiology impacts our thoughts, and our nervous system is responsible for keeping us alive. So our brains have been around a lot longer than conscious, logical, rational thoughts. Our brains are habituated to keep us from being eaten by lions. So our brains, generally, the survival part only knows two things, danger or safety. So if your brain thinks it's about to get eaten by a lion, all of those wonderful, rational, think positive, set goals, do affirm, none of that works, right? Our brain has the thinking part, which is the front. They call it the cortex. There's the thinking part, the emotional part, and the survival part. I mean, there's more to it than that, but we'll just start there. Right. So if you're trying to think your way out of a problem, but your brain is stuck in survival mode, this is not available. That's why you can logically know this shouldn't bother me, but it really bothers me. Or I know that I should do this, but I can't seem to get myself out of whatever hole I'm stuck in. So it's so important to know that we have, so the nervous system is essentially like a car. We have the gas, we have the brakes. Again, it's simplified, but when our gas pedal's down, that's up energy, it's go energy, but too much gas is going to feel like anxiety and it's going to feel like panic and it's going to feel like overwhelm. The brake is good for slowing us down, but too much brake is going to look like fatigue, depression, lack of motivation. And these are these mechanisms, the gas and the brake and knowing, okay, if my gas pedal is stuck to the ground, which is how I usually function, I'm go, 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 collapse. How do I get my gas pedal unstuck? Or if my brake pedal is stuck to the floor and I cannot get myself motivated to do anything, I need to know how that works physiologically because there's brain hacks that really work quickly to help the body get out of wherever it's stuck. Hmm. How do you sort of generally work with your clients to create a re-regulation of something that's been off? And they call it in the trauma world, the window of tolerance. So again, this is like the break in the gas, but a different metaphor. If you think of a thermostat, you know, 72 is the high and 68 is the low, and it never really goes above that. And it never really goes below that. And within this window, we can manage our lives, right? If we're getting too anxious, we know how to settle. If we're getting too low, we know how to come up. So the very first thing that I do with my clients is let them know they are not crazy, And there is nothing wrong with them. And they don't have a lazy problem or a motivation problem. They're not stupid. This is a physiological thing. Just knowing that can make symptoms round out a little bit. Our bodies are already in distress and dysregulated. And then we attach a story to. And Brene Brown is so good about talking about attaching stories to the things that we experience. If we attach a story of shame to a symptom, we're going to inflame it. And then everything is sort of blown. So we have to take the shame story off the symptom before we can even begin to get it back down into a place where then we can use all of our good, positive thinking, logical thought skills. Right. I think it's a big deal. So important. I mean, I got raised in a family that looks normal. Everything looks fine. And it's what's wrong with me that I am having these really amplified things going on. I couldn't explain it. And so the only explanation that people will come to in the absence of trauma information is it must be me. The other thing I say to my clients is, please ask yourself, is it possible that there's information I don't know that could be explaining this before you come to a decision that it's just you? 
Mm-hmm. What if there's information I don't have? And if I had it, it would explain this because I've experienced a lot of traumatic events, but there's very few things to me that are worse than feeling absolute insanity. And like, I can't trust myself and that at any moment my brain's going to explode and I'm going to be wandering around. It's just, it's an awful feeling. It's terrible. Yeah. So knowing there's an explanation, every single symptom makes sense in context. Okay. A couple more just nuggets that I pulled out that I would love you to talk about. We cannot change anything about the past. We can all agree on that. We can change everything about the way our brains relate to the past and the present. Talk about that and how you coach people and help people to achieve that. So a lot of people hesitate to do therapy because, well, what's the point in dealing with any of this? Because you can't change it. What's happened has happened and that's it. And that is true. We can't physically go back and change the past, but the past is stored in our brains. If you think of a closet, like a storage closet, you know, our memories are stored in the closet. And if our closet is disorganized, when we open the door, everything's going to come falling down on our head. So we can't change what's in the closet, but we can change how it's stored. And a lot of what trauma work does is it creates containers for these difficult memories. It takes the emotional charge off the memories. It takes the toxic poison off of them. So when you go back and you think about, oh my God, that thing that happened when I was 12, you can remember it without the negative feelings or the fear feelings or whatever the feelings are that are associated with it. And that's incredibly good news because life, tricky. And we all have things that have happened to us that that are really just cringy. We all survived adolescence. Puberty is traumatic in itself, right? So being able to recall our own story without shame, fear, guilt, and pain is really a gift. And it's incredible that that is actually possible with trauma work. Hmm. I've seen so much where people attach the story of blame and shame, self-blame and shame to something that was done to them, even though we can say, you didn't do that, that was done to you. So often that's the way the story unfolds in somebody's mind. And if you think of little kids, right? Little kids will always blame themselves in the absence of information. You can tell a five-year-old, oh, sweetie, it wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong, but they're not going to stop crying. They're going to keep going the same mechanism in adults until we have an experience of being held in safety and having a new way to relate to what's happening to us, we're going to blame ourselves Mm -hmm. and it's not accurate and it's not helpful. And our lives don't work when we live in shame and self-blame. I do want to turn to some questions. The first one is about trauma and self-esteem. How did those interact? And if there's been a traumatic event and it's negatively impacted self-esteem, how do you work with somebody on that? So the first thing we have to do is define self-esteem. It's the word that gets tossed around, and we all think we know what it means. It's how I feel about myself. Well, okay, well, what does the self mean? And so there's a model of therapy that I love called internal family systems. If you've seen the movie Inside Out, the Pixar movie, it's sort of that idea that within our bodies are these parts of us. And part of me knows I should go to the gym. Part of me wants to lay on the couch and watch Netflix. 
part of me knows logically this isn't my fault, but part of me can't help but feeling guilty. And so self-esteem is actually a problem with one of these parts. Some people call it inner child work or sub-personalities. You don't have multiple personality disorder, but we all function in a system of multiples. We're like trees. There's bark and roots and leaves and branches. And the way to work with one part is going to differ from another part. So let's say something traumatic happens to me and it reminds me of that thing in fifth grade that happens to me. So I now have a 10-year-old part of me that needs tending to. And the intervention for a 10-year-old is not the same as a 25-year-old. So it's so important not to ask, why do I have bad self-esteem? But which parts of my story are getting aggravated by what's happening to me now? Because most people will agree, I know I should have better self-esteem, but I don't know how to fix it. It's because it's not about yourself that needs esteem. It's understanding on your timeline of you, you're every age that you've ever been. So do you have a three-year-old part of yourself that has trouble with what's happening? Do you have a 16-year-old part of yourself? My rejection story is usually an adolescent teenager-y thing, right? But my fear and abandonment stuff is usually a, a smaller child. So I would argue no one actually has a problem with self-esteem, but we all have a problem with part esteem, which parts of us need help. Interesting. Let's talk about childhood and what we did or didn't get in childhood. I've been really interested in, again, the same person who gave me that big trigger ball years ago, which actually helped me tremendously, but it felt terrible at the time, asked me the question, what did your mother not give you? I was like, I had a good mother. I was really defensive at that point. I was like, how can you be like criticizing my mother who did her best and she's a good person and she loved me. And then I came to understand there are things she didn't give me because one person can't give you everything in your childhood and you can't possibly have all of your needs met. Correct me if you disagree, but let's talk about needs that are not met in childhood and what we do with them now So the mommy problem with the shame, usually people fall in one or two camps. One, I had a good mom. Don't you talk about my mom? She did the best she could, like you said. Mm -hmm. Or, oh crap, I'm a mom. And what am I doing to mess up my kids? Mm -hmm. So it's so important that if you are a parent, this is not about shaming you. If you're concerned enough to ask, how can I do better by my kids? Then you're good. And it's not about shaming your mom. She may very well have been a great mom who did the best she could. But every mom is a human no human is perfect. And so mom may not have meant to harm you or not meet your needs, but her intention does not change the impact. The example I give people is I may not have intended to run you over with my car. That was really not my intention. I'm a good person. You're a good friend of mine. I didn't mean to hit you, but that does not make your leg any less broken. And so it's so important to validate that your pain doesn't take away from the goodness of your parents and giving yourself permission to explore, okay, where were my needs possibly not met? And knowing every mom is a human and no human is perfect. And so no shame. So circling back to what you were saying, as far as mom not meeting your needs, you know, a lot of people go, well, I don't know. I, I have no idea. Well, look at what's happening in the present. Are you terrified of rejection? Okay. That usually goes back to at some point in your life, that need for security wasn't met. Okay, are you terrified of abandonment? Are you a people pleaser? Are you a chronic, I must make sure that everyone is okay before I can be okay? That goes back to a need that didn't get met. And again, it's not about shame. 
It's about understanding and naming the problem so we can solve it. Yeah. I've actually come full circle with my relationship with my mom, where I can both acknowledge where my needs weren't met and there's just no blame and there's great gratitude for what she was able to do and her own limitations. It's taken me a while, <laughs> but I've You got- do good work. That's integration, right? And with trauma, what happens is trauma fragments ourselves. So we don't feel whole and we don't know what's going on. Being able to hold the duality of my mom wasn't perfect and I love her and I recognize where she caused pain and I can still see her. That's wholeness. There's like a toxic positivity thing where it's, I just jump right to forgiveness. I just forgive her and everything is light and love and peace and happy and positive. And that's not integration because we're ignoring the pain. When you can hold the pain and the truth that she was doing the best she could, that's healing. There's another layer to it, which is she had a lot of capital T trauma in her life. And so sometimes she'll do things that seem irrationally logical. And I want, for the longest time, I wanted to heal her of it, heal her of all of the, you know, capital T trauma that she had experienced. And then I realized she actually, in one generation, managed to protect me from it. And so she's sort of had to hold her sword up against it her whole life to protect me And who am I to tell her, put down that sword right now, like turn on a dime, put down that sword. And so part of me is okay with her holding on to her coping mechanisms that she created, frankly, to insulate me. I don't know if that has any basis in any of your work, but that's the way I really reconciled it in my mind. It's huge because what you're talking about is trying to get her to see and change and do. And with trauma work, you realize that you can't change people, but you can change how you react to them. You can change how their behaviors impact you. You can change how your nervous system either goes into hyperdrive. And you can look at like Thanksgiving and Christmas for people whose nervous systems go into hyperdrive or into shutdown. But absolutely, that's totally relevant. You can own your story and see her standing in hers. It's created a lot of peace for me Mm. in the relationship. So talking about inherited trauma, can it be passed down so that somebody's child is experiencing something that they may not be able to name or see or consciously understand? I'll just start by saying there's an awesome book called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin is like the book on dealing with inherited family trauma. That book was just like, oh my God, welcome to another level of crap to deal with. And yay, now we can deal with it and we know what to do about it. So inherited family trauma is really interesting because yes, we can actually be impacted by events that we did not experience. So if you think about you're inside your mother's womb and feeling everything she's feeling and experience, well, she was in her mother and who was in her mother, who was in her mother. And so from generations ago, you can have symptoms of panic and terror and night terrors and anxiety from things that you actually never went through. Now, okay, so the bad news about that is you might never actually know why you're having your symptoms, but more good news. You don't actually need to remember the trauma in order to heal from it. So memories is tricky. You don't actually need to cognitively know four generations ago, my grandmother experienced this. Okay, now I can heal. The story can be helpful. 
but it's not necessary. And so what I tell people is if you think you have inherited family trauma, don't go crazy trying to figure out the story. Start with where you're at. What do I need right now to feel safe? That actually addresses one of our questions, which was, is it important to know why it happened? If I walked out into the middle of the street and I see somebody lying on the floor because they just got hit by a car, I'm not going to ask them why they're in the street. I'm going to get them to the side and tend to the wounds. And if we figure out what happens and why later on, cool. I mean, knowing why can be useful, but it does not change anything. Why did he do that to me? There's no answer that's going to make that okay. I think that we search for the why as a way of making it okay. There's nothing that can be answered that can make trauma okay. You have a right to your pain. You have a right to your feelings. And why someone did something in no way changes its impact on you, even if you did get the answer. Easier said than done. Yeah, yeah. I have a question about sexual abuse and body image. I'd love to know whether you see those linked often and what underlies that. I have so much compassion on that issue as I am a sexual abuse survivor and an eating disorder survivor. I get it. And so I don't like to use always because the world is just too big for always and never. But I will say I have not seen sexual abuse that does not come with food issues or body issues. Like I have never seen it. I've never heard of it where someone with sexual trauma doesn't also have to some degree a food issue or a body image issue, which makes sense. I don't even use the word body when I'm dealing with sexual abuse because that word itself is so triggering, right? There's no escape. If the abuse happens to the thing I walk around in, I can never leave it. It makes sense why we turn to other things to check out of our bodies. So the answer to the, you know, what do we do about it is too broad for today. But yes, if there are sexual trauma issues, it's almost guaranteed that there are going to be food issues, sex issues, and body image issues. And, you know, I'll skip to the end of the story. That can get a lot better. That It's a long process. It's a painful, slow, awful process. It's worth doing because making peace with the thing you walk around in and making peace with the fact that we have to eat to survive is, is really worth the effort of doing it. Can you tell us a little bit about your process? <laughs> what it was like? And I do share about my own personal story, just so people know I'm not Pollyanna about, yeah, you can get better and it can heal. It's like I was, I used drugs and I had an eating disorder and I was in bad relationship, all the things. And so I avoided the work. I did, I did everything but deal with my sexual trauma. And I was hell bent on not. And it wasn't until doing the work, as bad as it was, was still a better option than not doing the work. And so you don't have to deal with your sexual trauma now. There's a lot of things that go on when there's trauma and issues. So if now is not the right time to deal with your sexual trauma, that needs to be okay. I would tell people, don't go there until you feel safe, until you feel supported, and until you are pretty sure that the help that you're getting can handle what you're bringing, because you cannot heal sexual trauma in the absence of a safe container. And so I didn't for a really long time. I just didn't. And then eventually it got to the point where if I don't figure this out, I'm not going to be able to continue to live. So that was when I'm like, okay, fine. I will surrender and do this freaking work because I, at this point, have no alternative. You don't have to wait till it gets that bad. And then my process was, what have I been not wanting to deal with? What are the truths of my life that I have gone to great lengths to avoid? 
and trusting the person in front of me to lead me through tolerating the experience of living in this body. And that's really what trauma healing is. It's learning to tolerate what our experience is bringing us, whether it's grief or shame or whatever it is. And there are ways of working with the body, with the brain, with the heart, with the spirit. And there's a lot of ways of working to develop a tolerance to what we're feeling without feeling the need to check out. What advice would you give somebody who is not in that safe container and feels like maybe now is the time to do the work and they're just looking for the right support system, the right safe container to do the work? Well, the first thing is going back to you're not crazy. So remind yourself, adding, a, I should be dealing with my trauma. Why? Why? There's no should. If it's not a good time, it's not a good time. So giving yourself a lot of permission and a lot of grace that this is not the right time to be dealing with my sexual trauma. Let that be okay. That just needs to be okay. Like that really just needs to be okay. And then as far as looking for safe, helping people, not everyone has access to trauma-informed helping professionals. It's a specialty. It can be difficult. But at the very least, if you don't have access to a trauma-informed professional, do not accept a mental illness diagnosis as gospel fact. There's nothing wrong with taking meds. If taking meds is your jam, it can be useful. But taking on the, this is who I am now. I have this mental illness. This is my disease. Without someone who knows trauma working through it with you, uh-uh. So there's a lot of good therapy that can be done that's not trauma work. But do not take on the burden of an identity of an illness from a non-trauma-informed professional. Yeah. And there are a lot of therapists, you know, I'm sure good therapists and informed therapists who are not trauma informed, which is different, right? And a healthy therapist will tell you that. I mean, I don't work with everything. So I know my limitations. If someone comes to me with, here's my issue, and I know that's out of my scope, then I'll tell them that's not my thing, but here are some people you can call. So a non-trauma informed professional who is safe will tell you their limits. Mm -hmm will always tell you their limits. And another you know, way to find a safe helping professional is if you never feel guilted by them, if you're not afraid to ask questions, if you know that you can leave at any time. Like there's no, I'm afraid to leave my therapist. No, 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 no. You are free to leave anytime you want. If you don't have that, you're not in a safe place. Right. I always tell people, if you have a teacher, a therapist, a you know, spiritual guru who would be offended if you said to them, I don't need you anymore. Run. Run. <laughs> Run. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell every person I work with, we'll work together until it doesn't make sense. And that'll either be because everything's good to go or because you found somebody who can meet your needs in a better way. Awesome. There's a question about significant other helping the person that you're with to understand the trauma brain. So helping that person understand that your perception of experiences may be different than their perception of experiences. My first piece of advice is don't try to therapize your partner, even if you can. Like I could, I don't. It's not a good idea for anybody. But what you can do is ask them, are they willing to read and learn and are they curious? Even if your partner isn't into therapy or wellness or mental health, if your partner is willing to read a few articles on, here's how the three parts of the brain work, it can be really useful to appeal to their sense of intellectual curiosity. Like, okay, no, you don't need therapy, 
but here's a few things that I'm learning about. Would you be willing to read them and sort of work it in that way? (laughs) Yeah, I've worked with a lot of women who are very interested in teaching their husbands what they've learned. And my advice to them is stop, don't, don't. Do your thing, let them see their changes in you, and then they'll be curious. Then they'll be interested. But if you try and ram it down their throats, uh, you know. It doesn't work. It certainly doesn't it work does. in, my, in my marriage. So I don't know, maybe it works in other people's, but it doesn't work in mine. I'm going with a big no. And if yeah. you are shifting how you show up in your marriage or your relationship or whatever, they're going to shift too. And I love what you just said. Do your thing. Live your best life. I promise you they're going to go, what the hell are they up to? I want to know what's going on. Look how happy they are. Oh my gosh, they have boundaries. Oh my God, they're doing their thing. Spark curiosity rather than ramming information. Yeah, yeah. I think the best way to trigger change in other people is to just like focus on you. Make yourself happy and motivated and engaged. And people are going to start looking at you and being like, I want what she has. Yes. That's the principle of the 12-step program for people with addictions. They say it, attraction, not promotion. We don't promote what we do. We do our thing and people see what we have and they want it and they come. That's the best way to do it. Interesting. Um, I have a question here about DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. I don't even know what it is. So I'm curious too. What do you think of it? And do you use it? So I went through DBT as a client. I'm like, I'll do anything. So dialectical behavioral therapy is sort of the the first go-to for borderline personality disorder or severe emotional dysregulation. So the gist is it's skills building and the areas of skills building are mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotional regulation, and being able to tolerate distress. Now, DBT is great for getting some skills on board, but it does not heal trauma. So DBT, hardcore DBT people will say you can't do both at the same time. You have to do DBT first and then you do trauma. I don't subscribe to that because sometimes DBT won't work until you do trauma. So I think they go hand in hand. It can be great for learning tools, hacks, skills. It's a lot of you know, worksheets and homeworks and it's a lot of group activities. So it can be useful for managing. I imagine that there's a whole set of different approaches, modalities, tools that you use, but if you could walk us through just a couple of them to help us understand what's involved. I have a bajillion tools in my toolbox. Mm -hmm. So the main ones that I draw from, so somatic experiencing is a trauma model that focuses pretty much on the body. And so there's not feelings processing. We don't really go through story. We don't go through memory. It's what's happening in your physiology. What does your body need to do? A session with somatic experiencing might look like we spend the entire hour rearranging the couches in a way that you feel safe. So this is really good for the men I work with because they don't want to come in and talk about their feelings and they think I'm nuts because I'll, I'll stand against the wall and go move the couches so you feel safe. And then they'll put themselves in one corner and they'll put me in another with like three Ottomans in between us. And just having that sense of choice and moving around and mobility is it trips them out, but it's actually really effective. So my hack is if you have trauma, face the door. If you're anywhere where your back is to a door, you're going to feel anxious and your brain's not going to feel okay unless it knows where the exit is. And so that's the type of thing that I do when I'm doing purely body work. That's just one example. And then there's skills building where it's really directive. Like, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. 
And then there's another model I work with called internal family systems. And that's working with these parts and that's inner child work. And that's understanding that developmental needs that weren't met. It's how we talk to ourselves. Like, do you talk to yourself as a loving parent would talk to a child or are you beating the crap out of yourself? You should do this. You should do this. You look like crap. And it's working on facilitating the relationship between ourselves and these parts of ourselves. I do play therapy. I do sand tray and I've got adults in my sandbox with little miniatures, which is like a Jungian way of working. There's, there's a lot of ways to get to stuff if one way doesn't work for you. Hmm. The amount of compassion and the space for love that you can hold in this work is really, really tremendous. And the underlying basis of compassion where you say again and again, you are not crazy. There is nothing wrong with you. It feels like that's really the core of everything you do. Yes. And so the compassion takes the shame and the gunk off of it so we can get our work done with other people. Compassion has to coexist with boundaries. So having compassion on a narcissistic parent does not mean I am a doormat because I recognize you have trauma and I feel bad for you. That is not compassion. That's codependence. Compassion is, wow, I recognize that you have stuff that you haven't dealt with. I'm not going to interface with you. I'm not going to actually have much contact with you at all because you're not safe and you're not healthy, but I'm doing it from a place of love. So compassion needs to have boundaries in order for the relationship to work. Compassion is not permission to act like a fool. Compassion is recognizing there's nothing fundamentally bad about you. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about narcissism, gaslighting. We got a question where, you know, sometimes people experience trauma and then the perpetrators make them feel crazy. So help us understand just the fundamental dynamic, how to recognize it if it's happening to you and how to understand what it is. So gaslighting is a term from a Hitchcock film. And the gist of it is when a person is intentionally causing you to question your sanity. So if I see that someone is chatting with a girl and I go, Hey, who are you talking to? And they go, nobody. I don't know what you're talking about. This is just a pop-up ad. That's gaslighting. It's I saw what I saw, but you don't want me to see what I saw. So you're going to make something up. That causes me to go, oh, well, maybe, maybe it was that. I don't know. Maybe, oh, what's real? I don't know what's real. Maybe he's right. And then I'm apologizing to him for something that he did. Gaslighting is an awful form of abuse and manipulation. So if you're in a relationship and you're not sure if you're being subject to gaslighting, it's really important to have friends who can be reality checks for you. Mm-hmm. Friends outside of your, your partnership, friends who are outside of the system to whom you can say, hey, this is what's going on. Am I crazy? You need connection in order to be able to make sense of reality, especially if narcissistic abuse is involved. Mm -hmm. And they want to isolate you. So that can be tricky. Yeah. And I know you do a lot of work around narcissism and you have a course. Tell us about that. So narcissism is a, a whole nother thing like with trauma where narcissism is not taught and it's not something that you can really go to school for. It's It's been around forever, but it's only recently that it's getting a lot of traction and there's a lot of buzz. Or, you know, A lot of people are using the word now. Everyone's a narcissist. <laughs> um, but that particular form of abuse, if you haven't 
experienced it, it's really hard to work with it or to recognize it. And so I had a lifetime of narcissistic relationships. And so um, I spent a year with a, a partner of mine and we put together a five hour course with every single bit of information available on what it is, why it happens, why you do what you do, why they do what they do, how to help them, how to have boundaries, what's this grief thing, how to work with it, all of the things. And there is some good information out now about it, but it's so tricky because if you don't know how to spot it, it's going to get missed. Yeah. So I have a question here about small T trauma. Is there a difference between small T trauma and big T trauma? And do we all have it? So small T trauma would be the traumas that you don't necessarily think are traumas. So big T traumas are the ones we can pretty much universally agree. Assault, abuse, oppression, poverty, natural disasters, being in combat, all of those things, they call them big T traumas, not because the little ones aren't valid, but just because these are the ones we can all get behind. And they are not singular incidents, but they're these big things. Little T traumas might be a parent who's an alcoholic who doesn't beat you, but who disappears for weeks at a time. And over the course of your life, that happens. Little T doesn't mean that that's not devastating. It just means it's not this singular big event. It's sort of this ongoing, inescapable environment of threats where you don't, you may not even know that you're experiencing trauma. Would you put childhood illness in big T trauma? And Absolutely. would you put a household where feelings are never expressed in little t trauma. And putting them in the categories is so tricky because it's like if you got screamed at for having feelings and expressing them, that would be a big T trauma. But the environment of the family not wanting you to express your feelings would be the little T. So I tell people don't get too hung up on if it's big or little. But your other question, not everyone has experienced big T trauma. Everyone. There is not a, and I get a lot of angry messages, but it's true. There is not a soul who has not experienced trauma to a degree. We're not equal, but everyone has experienced a little T trauma to one degree or another. And you have a right to your pain and to heal from it. Uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right. I wasn't even trying to really categorize it, but I think there are a lot of things that go into the sort of small T trauma area that people don't recognize as something that might need to be healed from. I'm so glad you said that. I have clients that obsess, is this big T or is this little T? And if this is little, you know, my kind of perfectionist, like where does it fall in which category? So I'm glad you said that because it doesn't really matter. Trauma is for everyone. Yeah. So Britt, are you writing a book? Yes. It's my little idea baby that's still gestating, but I'm working on it. So yes. That's great. I cannot wait to read it. I think it's going to be so fascinating. I love your perspective. I love your piercing insight and the way that you frame things with such um, generosity and compassion and a lot of caveats, a lot of, you know, this is not gospel. Everyone has their own experience. So if you are not familiar with Brit's work, please get familiar with Brit's work. It's been such a pleasure having you on today. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we welcome you to stay close and discover more of our offerings. Check us out on Instagram at Nushu or visit Nushu.com for more.